This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio archives. Here are two from the vaults, journalist and memoirist Buzz Bissinger and author and musician Daniel Jose Older. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Buzz Bissinger in the office for the 25th anniversary of his groundbreaking book, Friday Night Lights. Hello, Buzz. I'm so glad that you're in the office with us. Well, you know, this is the Citadel for authors, so it's kind of uh, awesome to be here. It's actually pretty cool. I'm oh. really glad that you're here. So, um, really, 25 years. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, it, the book still seems as fresh and relevant now as it was then. How, do, how does the passage of time on this feel to you? Well, you know, time goes quickly until you think about it. I mean, I was 34 years old when I wrote this book. It was the first book I'd ever written. And the fact that we're here talking about it 25 years later is freaky and um, amazing. You know, I'm now 60, and I didn't really know what I was doing, perhaps, although I knew I had a great story this book has somehow become timeless and iconic, and I appreciate what you say. I think it is as relevant today as it was 25 years ago, and maybe more so because our obsession with sports is worse than ever. And we had just been talking before, I- I- exactly, and especially football, and, and now at the college and high school level, especially in the South. And right. and what is also making this uh, so fresh and relevant is the many iterations that the book has had in its TV series, <laughs> movies, um, it's it's pretty amazing that it's still, again, the same themes are being played out in high schools across the country. Yeah, and listen, if they made a musical of Hamilton, they could make a musical of Friday Night Lights, right? Like, like I'm waiting. Right. Right. Friday Night Broadway Lights. Yeah, no, the curious right. incident of the, what am I, chopped liver? Right. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you know, just when you think the, the, the phrase Friday Night Lights would, would die down, then the right. movie, and then the television series... And we were talking about this, to have three distinctively really, really quality iterations. I go back to MASH, which was fantastic in all three right. iterations. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really unheard of. And once again, you know, flattering. And I think it's cool. You know, so what do you think about movie television show? You know, they're all different forms. It's why yeah. books are great. It's why movies are great. And it's why TV shows are great. And we all succeeded. So, so the 25th anniversary, this is, uh, you're going to be starting on a book tour. You've, right. you're on so many radio TV sh- shows right now this week. Um, but it was a much different feeling when the book was published 25 years ago. I mean, it was met with controversy. A lot of controversy. And, but there were even, uh, when I heard, death threats. I mean, what was that time like? What was happening? Tell us about what happened when the book well, was Well, I mean, out. you know, the book was controversial. I knew it would be controversial, not because I was looking for controversy, but because I saw very, very disturbing, shocking things in terms of the excess, in terms of high school football being out of control. I mean, you know, high school football is part of our cultural heritage in America, but this had gone beyond all bounds. Yeah. I'm a journalist. You have to write about it. The city of Odessa, the town, went crazy. They were livid with me. The team I wrote about had gotten kicked out of the playoffs. It was not related to the book, but they blamed the book, and I was supposed to go down and do signings. And several people, many people, called the bookstores and says, you know, we'll kick the Friday Night Lights out of him. And wow. I know Odessa. They're spirited. They're independent. I have a lot of respect, but, you know, that can happen. And they said, we do not want to be responsible uh, for safety, sure. and that's why it was canceled. Uh, why were they kicked out? Uh, they were kicked out. They were turned in by the, you know, it, so it was, it was a crazy frenzy. They were turned in by the other high school in town right. for starting summer practice right. early. So the town was going nuts because you have to remember, kids have waited all their lives right. to go to the playoffs, but not just kids. That's not the problem in many ways, parents. 
They had waited all their lives. This is their shining moment. And to be deprived of that, and then there's this book, it was, it was pretty wild. I mean, it was pretty, pretty intense. So, um, as you said, you were in your mid-30s when the book was published. Uh, it was your first book, but you'd already won a Pulitzer for your investigative reporting for the Philadelphia Inquirer. How did you come across the story of this football team, the idea that there was something there worth pursuing? You know, I'm, I'm asked that a lot, and I'm asked that a lot. I've, I just started teaching, and students want to know, where do you get your ideas? Sure, and you get your ideas subconsciously, and you get your ideas from the heart. When I was 13 years old, I read an article in Sports Illustrated. I love Sports Illustrated. I love sports. It was written by the great Dan Jenkins about a high school quarterback in Abilene, Texas, named Jack Mildren, who was the most sought-after recruit in the country and was playing in front of 15,000 people on a, on a Friday night and was the Elvis Presley, the Marilyn Monroe, the god of the town. And I was mesmerized because he wasn't that much older than I was. Mm. And that stuck in my head. Then I was very moved and affected by the last picture show this isolated Texas town in which the only thing where they gathered together is, is high school football, desolate, lonely. And that really got into my soul. And then it really kicked in in the mid-1980s. I had uh, been on a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard and had some time off from the Inquirer and drove cross-country. You take the southern route. You mm-hmm. go through Louisiana, Texas, Alabama. Main Street was, was obliterated. Small-town America was, was obliterated. Right. Uh, but then you go a few blocks out and you would see these high school stadiums. A lot of them built in the WPA, beautiful, immaculate shrines. I said, these, these are shrines. You know, it was like a Eureka. These are shrines. These are temples to people's hopes and their dreams on a Friday night. This is where every person in town gathers to root for their teenage kids. So it's that oasis of grass in the middle of the desert. Yes, exactly. So, and, and that's definitely, was definitely true of Odessa. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you have the, the idea of the, of the high school football and this team in Odessa. How did you know there was a story there? Or, or what, what kind of research? Who did you start talking well, to? Well, you know, you don't. I will say I had an agent at the time, Michael Carlisle, who was very helpful. I spoke right. to Michael, and Michael said, you know, it sounds great, but you've got to find the town. Where are you going to do this? You know, and... I realized right away, you got to do high school football. If you're going to do it, you got to do Texas. It's so synonymous with Texas. And I knew some of the lore. And it wasn't very scientific. I spoke to some college recruiters. I actually spoke to a guy named Ernie Adams, who was Bill Belichick's right-hand man with the Patriots, and I'd gone to Andover with. And they all said, go to Odessa. And I said, why? They said, just go see it as a legendary team. It's in the middle of nowhere. And I remember a guy named Bill Reese from UCLA said, go look at the stadium. You know, so I drove out there, and it's, it is, you know, a town is bad when other Texans make fun of it. Mm. It is in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's gritty. It's oil country. It's roughneck country, and you drive out, and it's flat, and it's ugly, and you go out, and you see this stadium that was built in 1985 for $5.6 million, which is a lot of money. 19,000 people. So you did 19,000 people. Artificial surface feel. The only place where they skimped was they did not build an elevator to the two-story press box. <laughs> that combined with the team that was legendary then and the winningest team in Texas state history and had a Cinderella quality, and I knew had a good chance to do well, I said, this is it. I will say, Odessa is not a quintessential small town. It's about 90,000, but it's so hermetic and so isolated that it just felt right. And as a writer, you want adventures. You right. want, you know, people say, was it weird? No, it was great because when you're writing a book, when you're writing anything, you want everything to be fresh everything to be new because your eyes never got get stale everything is my god my god and it was an incredibly stimulating year it was fascinating um a lot of stereotypes i had broke down but i did also know that i was gone after a year if if i had been there for you know an indeterminate amount of time i would have gone nuts right Mm. Uh, and what were the stereotypes that you had before going there and what was there right okay these are these are hicks yeah these are Texas Hicks, and I and I found the kids that I wrote about to have soul, mm-hmm. to have heart, to be completely authentic, which is really rare in American life and really rare on the East Coast, frankly. And mm. I'm, I'm from New York City and had a life of extreme embarrassing privilege. They said what they felt. There, w- there was such a soul to them, such a character to them, and they were smart. They were interesting. Maybe not very well educated because the school system was pretty lousy then. 
And you don't find that many places. Odessa was the most authentic place I've ever been. And part of that authenticity was saying, we're going to kick the crap out of this guy because he harmed us. And he sold us a bill of goods about what kind of book he was going to write. So did you really um, sort of go in there and say, I'm going to praise you, the skies, and then turn around? Or it was, that was just sort of what they assumed? I, 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 I never used the word praise from what I knew. You got to remember, I go in open-ended. I right. do not know what's going to happen. And but, I don't. I mean, that seemed more likely I from don't. an investigative journalist standpoint. They knew standpoint. my credentials. They knew I'd want to pull a surprise. And this is a pretty media-savvy football team. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to state and winning state, you're covered all over the state. There had already been a book written, a very glowing book. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I thought it would be much more of a Hoosiers-type experience. I, I, I remember writing the proposal, and I thought the key, you don't know, is that there was this black running back, Booby Miles, who would lead the team to the promised land, which might be interesting because the black population was very, very small. But, you know, stuff unfolded that was disturbing, shocking. Racism, when I got into the school, the academic priorities were really screwed up. That's not to say there were bright kids, but there was really no motivation. There was very little teaching. Those who taught were completely discouraged because of football. Mm. And football had devoured that town. And, you know, when, when people, you have your notebook open, and people look at you, and they use the N-word, and they're not using the N-word nicely. There's no way to use it nicely. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. You, you, you say, you I'm sorry. What do you read? The, read them the Miranda warnings? And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like I was hiding behind bushes. And it was prevalent. And, you know, you report. They didn't de- desegregate the schools until 1982 by court order. They didn't want to. Well, you, you, you can't ignore that. Right. And you, you gained what seemed like unfettered access to the players, the coaches, the parents. How, how did you gain their trust while keeping that kind of journalistic distance? Well, you know, I, I gained access before the season. I went down and visited the coach and visited the, the athletic director, who was a former coach, and uh, visited certain members of the school board. So I had the access. You know, you're a journalist. You don't play your hand. You know, you don't because mm-hmm. you shouldn't. So when someone is saying something that is shocking or you discover something shocking, I'm not going to play my hand because the purpose of the access is to get people to act themselves. Right. So if I say, well, you know, and, and some people you talk about desegregation, some people you talk about the impact of racism. But no, I didn't, I didn't play my hand and, and journalists do that. That book has been dissected for, what, 25 years. Yeah. They've, you know, they, may, they may disagree with the emphasis and the emphasis was exactly correct. There has not been a single fact I know of that's incorrect, except I did spell the name of a minor character wrong. It was Stony with an E, and I forgot the E. Dissected, looked at. Um, I've been back to Odessa not for an official book tour. Uh, they kind of like me now. Mm. The worst thing is they say, there was a book? <laughs> what book? You know, I say, well, I started no. it. And the weird thing is, the interesting thing is, I put that town on the map. Yeah. It is the home of the Friday Night Lights. Now, granted, the, the movie was a softer version and the TV show was. But, you know, so they should be thanking. I'm not going down there to seek. <laughs> I'm not going down there to, to seek forgiveness. Right. This is not the forgiveness tour. I can argue that they should forgive me for what they put me through. They should um, they should seek forgiveness or, you know, from Booby Miles for what they put him through. They should be embarrassed by the monster they created, just as they just as they have made real, real change. But this is not a goodwill tour. I'm not going to back down. Well, let's talk about uh, Booby Miles, who you right. wrote about uh, in in the follow-up to that after Friday Night Lights. Uh, the subtitle, I just want to read, When the Games Ended, the Real Life Began, An Unlikely Love Story. Talk to us about Booby Miles. Uh, he was right. the central character in Friday Night Lights and was right. one of the people who you stayed in touch. I, I don't know. Yes. Did you stay in touch or yes. did you re-get, regain we, touch? We, we, always, we always did stay in touch. It accentuated more after his beautiful uncle. What a, what a beautiful man. Died in 1988. Really the kindest, most decent man I think I've ever met. And by the way, in the 25th anniversary edition, there's a very extensive new afterward that right. um, gets everyone up to date on the players. That Great. was important to me in terms of completing the circle and also important to me emotionally. So tell us about Booby Miles first. Well, you know, Booby, Booby's the, I, I don't like to use the term because it sounds dismissive and I love Booby and Booby is a hell of a lot more self-aware than people ever thought. Booby was and is the poster boy for everything that's wrong about sports in America. Booby was considered and looked at as a, uh, I, I've said it before, but I don't know what other term, a football animal. Mm-hmm. 
a human being who had no worth beyond playing football. And that was said to me. I remember asking him, assistant coach, a really good guy and an enlightened guy. I said, what would Booby be with football? And he said, you know, a big, dumb, old N-word. A coach. But that's how they thought about him. Mm-hmm. He got no education. He had a tutor, and he pretty much got all the answers to tests. He was getting A's. He got, he got paid to play by a booster. Junior year, go to his locker room. Every Monday, there'd be an unmarked white envelope with as many yards, uh, dollars for as many yards as he had gained. Well, you know, he's, he's broke. He's poor. He gained 305 yards one night. That's 305 bucks. That's a lot to a kid. Well, you're not going to concentrate on academics. Right. You're not, you're not being encouraged. They, they put him in special ed classes, and he, he had special ed needs. But, you know, he was writing at a third grade level. And I've seen boobies written me letters that are eloquent and smart. They had no faith in him. But he was the big ticket until what happened so many times, he got hurt. Right before his senior season in a meaningless preseason scrimmage, he got hurt on a meaningless play. It wasn't even a hard hit. He blew out his knee. His season was done. Plus, what always happens is there are too many t- They found someone better. Mm. They found someone better off the bench and didn't care. They didn't care about him anymore. His life was over. Life is over for a lot of these kids, particularly inner city kids and minority kids, because that's how we value them. Mm-hmm. Your only worth is as a basketball player, as a football player, and if you don't make it, so what? You know, we don't care anymore. So I knew that Booby's life was going to be very, very hard. He had a high level of frustration. He went to junior college to play football. It didn't work because he had lost that second millisecond of speed. He was a fantastic... He, he, watching him run, and I always saw it on tape, watching him run was such joyful abandon. His physique, he was sort of like LeBron James. He was, he was a man among boys. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful to watch. And all that was taken from him. And his life went downward and downward. And you know, to say, when I interviewed him in April, he's in prison. He's serving 10 years for aggravated assault. He was up to 420 pounds. He's now back to about 360. His head is good. There's a uh, great self-awareness. There's a sadness to him. He's much too hard on himself, but it was hard. And I kept up with Booby a long time, and we have a very complicated, intertwined relationship, and uh, I've given him help financially. We split the proceeds of After Friday Night Lights, which was an e-book about him, because I think that was only fair. It didn't really help. It's hard when you're given a lump sum of money, and, you know, I'm like that. I mean, I spend a ton of money on weather. You know, you get a lump sum and say, whoa, you know, every author does that. I heard about an author who got a lot of uh, – I want to mention the name. He got a lot of money. He had a huge book party, and he realized he had no money left. Um, I love Booby. Seeing him was was hard. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, and I love him, and he loves me. But he's the poster boy for – what to me is the essence of the ultimate tragedy of, of, of sports in America and it happens all the time. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Buzz Bissinger, author of Friday Night Lights, about the book's 25th anniversary. Um, so this book really shifted your career. I mean, yes. it, it uh, it's very indelibly associated with your name. Did you expect that to happen? All I know is is that I had great training at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was it was the heyday of newspapers. There was no newspaper like it with a great Gene Roberts. I had written a lot of what we call takeouts, very long stories, where I began to learn about narrative and, and developing plot and characters. And I also realized that has nothing to do with writing a book because it's very, very different. I knew I had a great story. Mm-hmm. I knew I had a story unlike any other. I remember a, a wonderful editor I had at Vanity Fair, George Hodgman, saying, the key is to burrow into a subculture, to get underneath the skin, underneath the surface, and tell people about a world, even if they thought they knew something about it, they really don't. And I did that, and I knew that. As I said, to be talking here 25 years later, to have written something that has become iconic, to have invented a, a, a title, although actually Jane Isay came up with it, to, to invent a title that is used everywhere. I should have should have uh, trademarked it. Yeah. I could have used some advice <laughs> from you guys, actually, because then I'd be doing the radio interviews and I'd be doing it from some palace in Las Vegas. Uh, no. 
but I knew it was a great story. And the, yeah, the X factor, the, the fear was, would this translate outside of Texas? Hmm. They thought they could sell 20,000 copies in Texas. They sold a lot more, and then it swung out of Texas, and then other bookstores picked it up. What I didn't realize, and I think it's the, a primary reason for the sex of the book, success of the book and why it's still successful, is how many people identified with the book. Not the bad stuff. That was my high school. I remembered kids like that. I was a kid like that. And what I remember most of all is the beauty and the power and the darkness of the Friday Night Lights. I mean, I've had hundreds of people say, hey, that was my school. Doesn't matter if it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Wisconsin, you know, Minnesota, North Dakota. That was my high school. And that I did not really anticipate. Hmm. And so after, at what point did you leave the Inquirer? It was a, not, then, right then. I went on leave and never came back. I remember right. Gene, the great Gene Roberts saying, so what? Where are you going? Where's Odessa? What are you doing? That's ridiculous. No one's ever going to talk to you. You know, you're a Jew, little Jew from New York. They're not going to talk to you. And what are they going to say? They're a bunch of hicks. And he, he loved me and discouraged me. And I said, you know, it's in the union rules. You've got to give me leave. Hmm. And I went out there with, I had a book contract. It was not nearly what I was making. Uh, and I went out there with my lovely twin boys who were then five and my then fiance. And after that, the book came out and then you started, uh, then you were a contributing editor for, I Correct. mean, for, I guess it was Vanity Fair. Yes. yes. Uh, but you'd also wrote for GQ, later Deadspin right. and other right. places. So. I didn't quite write for Deadspin. Deadspin excoriated me because I was on the Bob Costa show and criticized the internet and bloggers. And I'm still right. getting emails saying you're a fool and we hate you. <laughs> but uh, they were tough, Deadspin. Right. Let me just tell you, they were tough. I sort of liked them now, yeah, but yeah. boy, were they tough. Oh, my God. Wow. And, um, you know, just this year you wrote for Vanity Fair. You got this big celebrity scoop of Caitlyn Jenner's transition. How did you land that? Well, it, it sort of traces back to much of what has happened in my life, which is great. But I had problems with it, for, you know, Friday Night Lights, because uh, there was a sports connection. Uh, I'd written, I'd written I a, a, a comic book about sports. Obviously, Kate and Jenner had been a great um, athlete. As it turned out, there were other personal connections um, as well. And then, you know, Graydon Carter, when he looked around, felt I would be the right person for it because of the sports connection and because I'm really an old-style, you mm -hmm. know, reporter. I, I believe in reporting things out and whether I succeed or not, I wanted to give that story an extra dimension. So that's why you talk to the kids. That's why you talk, um, you know, to the wives to, to try to burrow underneath. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. What, what was, um, what was that experience? Like, did you end up Bizarre. working the sports angle or did it just, were you sort of diving into this Kardashian no, because, celebrity well, world? We, it wasn't much Kardashian. It wasn't much sports because I mean, what was interesting about Caitlin is that, as Bruce completely minimized the accomplishment. Mm. I remember going into, into, and I say his, not dismissively, I, it's always hard, but when he was an Olympian, mm -hmm. or she was an Olympian, he had no memorabilia, nothing. I actually helped him move because he's very cheap and he wouldn't hire a mover. So he's got this, <laughs> this little guy helping him move. I said, come on, you know, this is ridiculous. He said, shut up and move. He's got a very good personality. He's very open. And I remember taking some vases and, and, and books off a bookshelf. And there, you know, on the, on the corner of the bookshelf were the, the iconic Wheaties box. I, I remember that. that and I said, do you know that's there? He said, oh, yeah, I, th I think it was there. And I said, Where, where's the great American flag you carried when you went? I, right. don't, I don't know where it is. I mean, he completely minimized it. We had an interesting connection in terms of, obviously, he was going through a profound transition. But I make no bones about it. You know, I like to cross-dress. I've had a fascination with, with women's clothing and, and, and leather, and this is a part of my life. And so there was, you know, that bond. I think mm. most of the time we wanted to talk about shoes. <laughs> uh, but there was that bond in terms of, wow, he is going through something pro so profound, and I've gone through something profound in my life. It's about difference and I, he's had an interesting impact on me. Actually. So it she, was. I'm sorry, she. I shouldn't say that. So it was really two things uh, that that enabled you to to get access to right. Caitlin, uh, both the sports angle, but I think more immediately the the piece you did for GQ yes. of being a shopaholic and as yeah. you mentioned before, spending <laughs> yeah half over half a million. Well, on I, I will say because I interviewed her, Chris Jenner was much more interested in that piece than Caitlin Jenner was. Mm. Because you know they're they're they've yeah. they've coined the term, 
But yes, I mean, you know, they, 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 it's interesting. I don't think they'd read the piece um, really? when I showed up, but then they read the piece and they right. said, wow, this is, you know, this, this, he knows something. Right. He knows a little something about what Caitlin has been going through, you know, all her life about, you know, and it's different because uh, gender is not, you know, transgenders, the gender is not tied to sexuality. For right. me, you know, I say it, women's clothing has been a sexual turn on. I think the phrase is autogenophilia. So there was a big difference. But he, at the very least, this guy knows about difference. Mm-hmm. This guy right. knows about how profound difference is and how difficult it is. It's not easy in this country. In Europe, it's very, very different. You know, I, these are actually, you know, I'll wear men's shoes with a four-inch heel. And, you know, the looks I get are endless. Mm-hmm. Endless. Like, what, you know, and I've worn, you know, wear a lot of women's clothing. And I've worn women's boots and mostly, you know, women's pants. And in Europe, not a big deal. It would be unisex. Right. But here in this country, it's it's hard. But, you know, Caitlin has been profound for me because more and more I say, screw it. Yeah. I, I, I want to be myself. You know, I don't wear a dress, frankly, because I don't look very good. <laughs> um, I've tried it, and I don't look good. Right. My, my wife and I have taught. It's no secret to my wife. It's no secret to my kids because, you know, it's all the stereotype. Yeah. What, what does it mean to be a man? Right. What does it mean because of what you wear? Right. What does it mean to be a woman? What what does that really mean? I mean, I think those those are just terms that have become increasingly um, arbitrary. But you know, and and the worst are the white heterosexual males because they're tight. I, I think I think they're all homoerotic in their own way. They're scared to death of anything out of the norm. The comments I get in my clothes: women love what I wear, right. and minorities love what they wear because they have a great sense of flash and and style. But these arbitrary labels that we give this is why i talk about it because i think it's wrong i hate going into clothing stores women's section men's section what who the hell cares women may like clothing that is defined as men and may men may like clothing defined as as women if you watch game of thrones Look at those yeah. outfits. Those right. outfits are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, what the hell happened? What who, the hell who happened? Who wouldn't want to wear right. those dresses? I know, right? but what yeah. you know, the, the, the men look so hot. I mean, what the hell happened? The transformation is really interesting because these are these are, I think, almost economic terms and yeah. social terms, religious terms. And you know, Caitlin has done so much to to bring the notion of sex change, transgender men and women, into the conversation. It's talked about. It's thought about. And I think that's great. And um, she has emboldened me to talk about it because I don't like the barriers because I think they're completely artificial. And, I, you know, I think there is more of a connection between this and, than, and football than some people might draw because so much of sports culture is about keeping those walls up and keeping right. those rules in place that men, men do this thing and men take right. the tough hit and they don't cry. Yeah, they, they, they take the tough hit and, and don't cry. And they're men. I mean, what Caitlyn Jenner had to, had to put up with all, all her life was, you know, I'm supposed to be a he-man. Right. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the greatest athlete in the world. I saved the American team because I remember those Olympics. We right. got clocked. And that was the day of the Cold War where right. the Olympics really counted. Yeah, it really mattered. Um, as Bruce saved the Olympics. But when you, you hear her talk about giving speeches, talking about the Olympics and winning and the dedication and, and sitting there and saying, I am such... A fraud. Mm. I am not who I want to be because everyone expects to me be mom and apple pie. And he was gorgeous. Mm. He, you know, we, yeah. I I hated him because he said that guy was so any woman. He, I mean, geez, yeah. he's perfect looking, and he's a great athlete. Um, but you know, he defined the the difficulty in this country of going against the stereotype of the athlete. You know, right. I've spent a lot of time in in clubhouses, and I think clubhouses are are incredibly homoerotic, which I think is really cool. But they're terrified of any kind of expression of it, which is why it's so hard to be openly gay. And, you know, who cares? You know, who cares? So then there's the sense, well, if you're gay, you're not a, you can't be a a good athlete, which is ridiculous, which is apt. But there's so many boundaries and stereotypes in in this country. And then you hear, you know, people talk. And I was on Morning Joe yesterday, and the previous guest was Mike Huckabee, who's offensive Yep. And ridiculous and talks about the republic as if it's his republic. Well, it's not my republic. And, you know, trying to get FaceTime out of out of this endless, endless um, invo- invocation of, of God and this ridiculousness and the Supreme Court does not define the law. It's abhorrent. But beyond abhorrent, it, it 
continues to define artificial stereotypes, which can be very different. Because imagine Caitlyn Jenner not having done this. Mm. And I imagine in my own life. I mean, you go crazy. You go crazy. I mean, it's a part of you. And, and I need some outlet. And obviously, in her case, much more intense. She needed, it wasn't desire. She needed to do this, but had to wait 65 years to feel it was safe. Yeah. And you've, you, you've described yourself just, just a while ago as this little Jew from New York. Uh, who are they going back to Odessa talking? But with it, you obviously, like in gaining access to them, you obviously have brought a certain sense of perception or a certain sense that what you see isn't what you get. Right. I mean, is that, how exactly you, is right. that how you get? We both realize that. Yeah. They had, they had a, you know, I showed up, I think the first time I was in it, it's like 105 degrees. I'm in a, in a tweed jacket with, with elbow <laughs> right. patches and loafers. As well, the they, reporter, they, they, they looked at me reporter. and said, where the hell has this guy come from? And he's an idiot. And they have East Coast stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And I had West Texas stereotypes. But I like people. And I, I like talking to people because I find in, inevitably that every stereotype of have is wrong. And they found that their stereotypes are wrong. We, we bonded. They were curious about me. They were interested about me. I was interested about them. And then, you know, in terms of writing, the, the great access can be a double-edged sword because I learned in this case, you're going to hurt people that you like often, or maybe you get too embedded with, with your subjects and don't write what you have to write. But the reason for the access you know, is to be there. Mm-hmm. The most important thing I did was to be at every practice, not be, to write about it. I mean, practices are boring after the yeah. first practice, but they would have early morning practice, 7 a.m., and I realized they were watching to see if I was there. Right. Mm. And because I was there, they said, oh, you know what? This guy's committed. This guy's going to do it. And that's the reason for, for access. The other reason for access and the other reason I lived there for a year is because when I wrote, I could write with authority. I, I knew that town. I lived in that town. My kids went to school in that town. And you need to write with confidence. You need to write for, with authority to be honest. You know, you can pipe it. You can wing it. A lot of writers do because they want to make money or it's, or it's thinly disguised screenplays or treatments for movies. But in my case, I was grounded and, and trained and taught as, a, as an old-style shoe-leather reporter. That's what, it, what it, it was about. It wasn't about point of view. It wasn't about edge. It wasn't about having lunch with a celebrity and defining and summing up their lives in some you know, bow, which is done all the time today. We've been talking with Buzz Bissinger. You can find his book, Friday Night Lights, in stores right now. And finally, you'll be able to see him on tour as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Buzz. This is great. I really um, really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Don't go away. We've got another great interview from the archives coming up right after this break. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography. And you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Daniel Jose Older on the line. Daniel's new book, his first novel, is Half Resurrection Blues. Hey, Daniel, so glad you could join us. Hey, very happy to be here. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the book, introduce us to Carlos and to the concept of ghost noir. So Carlos is half dead and half alive, and that puts him in the curious predicament of being able to move between the world of the dead and the world of the living. And he lives in Brooklyn, and basically uh, the Council of the Dead is this kind of nefarious bureaucracy of death that sends him off to do all their dirty work because he can be this, he can play this kind of in-between role and deal with living stuff when living problems happen and dead stuff when dead problems happen. Um, so he's uh, caught in between these two worlds, basically, and it, it, it has a noir feel to it in the sense of yeah, late nights, you know, drinking lots of coffee and smoking cigars and untangling complicated problems and uh, strange romances and these things. So the first thing that happens in the book uh, is that Carlos uh, is assigned to chase a person. He tracks him down and realizes that this guy he's supposed to kill, this this person who's been set up as his enemy, is also the only other in-betweener he's ever met. So tell us, tell us about that tension between target and likeness. 
Yeah, well, he has this moment very early on, as you say, where he realizes that suddenly the game has changed. First of all, he's not the only in-betweener that anyone's ever heard of. There's these other people around. And in the course of that playing out, he realizes that there's, in fact, even more of them. So he has this moment where he's like, wait a minute, I'm not alone. And I'm not the only person in between these two worlds. And then he has to make a decision. And then everything kind of unfolds from that decision that he makes as things start to unravel and these mysterious creatures start appearing all over um, Prospect Heights' neighborhood. And then he has to deal with the consequences of that decision. And it ultimately really asks him to make choices about his allegiances to this bureaucracy or to find out more about who he really is. So Carlos is a law enforcement officer, basically, um, also obviously a minority in more ways than one. What's it like right. telling that story right now and writing the sequels right now with all the tensions that are currently going on? Yeah, it's a great question because it really has come up a lot for me as, as the book has been coming out. I wrote it in 2010 when these things were still going on, but less in the public eye. Um, and as it's been unfolding and then this book coming out, it's really had me think about it. And that especially in the sense that I, I think of a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of genre books and with the killing of a black man as the kind of saving grace. And um, mm. that's always really bothered me. And it's, it happens in books that I, that I love in other ways. And then that's, you know, this moment that it's like, why, why is that so consistent? Um, so part of writing this book was questioning that and wondering, you know, why why do we always have that and how do we get around it? How do we think in deeper ways about how the criminal justice system functions in the city and all these different problems and concepts of, of justice in larger ways, revenge. Um, so I was thinking about all those things when I was writing the book. <laughs> I've been thinking about them even more now. And it, it's there's no easy answer. There's no answer offered up in the book except that Taking lives is not an inconsequential thing. It's, it's often treated as, um, you know, there's, there's depth and there's consequences that are resounding throughout communities, throughout lives. And that's definitely one thing I was trying to think about with this. Was, was Carlos the character based on anyone you n- knew, say, in the neighborhood? Any uh, minority uh, law enforcement officers? Um, no, Carlos, his voice really comes from my own blog when I was writing um, about being a paramedic. So I was a paramedic for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, and I would just blog out the stories and the things that we dealt with, the different situations, and that really turned into, that was kind of a, an opening to writing fiction. So, you know, first I would just write these blogs, and then I found that it was really easy for me, and that the voice was really clear, and I was just writing what happened. And that's kind of like a a writer's rule, I think, that we forget sometimes because we get so caught up in saying it right and saying it in an interesting way. And starting out with a blog really taught me, like, you know, tell the story. And then things will unfold from that. Voice will unfold from that language and beauty. Um, so I started writing because of that. I started writing fiction because I realized that telling stories was in some ways very simple and in other ways you know you could bring more depth to it that way so So his voice comes directly from my own experience and so you just mentioned you were a paramedic and and Mm -hmm. you you were a paramedic for a while how did you get into that and how did it influence your writing about death and undeath I I got into (laughs) I got into it because I needed a job (laughs) Um, it was something that always really interested me but I didn't know, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I, I didn't see myself as a doctor ever either. Um, but I thought it was a fascinating idea uh, to, of, a, of a job to work. And then I was finishing college. I was a social science major and music minor. And I knew that I was going <laughs> to need to pay my rent. So I took the EMT course when I was a, uh, in my last year of college. And then I came to New York and became a paramedic here. Paramedic is a higher level of training than EMT. I worked at the for a little while, became a medic. For a while, I was just doing that. I, there was a lot of creative stuff happening inside of me, but I was so focused on just being, you know, a better medic <laughs> that I didn't have a lot of time to be writing or making music. But um, eventually, that really became a lot, of the, a lot of the push behind why I write ghost stories. And a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the fiction about these kind of struggles that humans have within bureaucracies that are 
at their root, maybe created by humans, but still based in things like making money or saving face or, you know, all these different bureaucratic things that aren't actually about human life. But here we are on this line of life and death. So the paramedics, you know, we were always conscious and aware of that, being on that line, being between life and death and being between humanity and bureaucracy. And that's always been a fascinating tension for me. So it just naturally unrolled, unraveled into fiction. So um, the first time I encountered Carlos was in some of the stories in your collection, Salsa Nocturna. Um, mm -hmm. How did writing a novel compare with writing those stories? Well, Salsa Nocturna it really helped me understand how a novel functions because it's interconnected short stories. Um, so I just at first just started out writing short stories, and they kept ending in these ways that uh, left a lot of room to wonder what happened next. And I, I like that in a short story personally because it makes you feel like it's part of a larger world and part of a larger life, and that feels true because we never really end stories, right? Um, but I, I realized as I was writing them that there was there were different arcs that were going through them. There were different characters that would show up again, and beyond that, there were ideas that would grow. So that excited me, and I realized that that was really um, a way to think about the larger arc of a novel, of a longer piece. And then on a smaller level, a micro level, it made me understand how a scene functions much more clearly, because when you're thinking about a short story, you're, you're still dealing with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you're still dealing with these arcs and these different turning points that happen. And sort of focusing on that and starting with that as a concept, it makes you realize when you're working in a novel form, uh, you're still putting together short stories. You're still taking these moments of crisis and layering them in increasing intensity on top of each other to reach this one larger climactic event. And uh, obviously with the titles, music is very important to your work. You have Resurrection Blues. The series is called Bone Street Rumba. You have the Salsa Nocturna, uh, which is, I'm told, not about salsa the food? <laughs> it's not a good book. <laughs> I, I get asked that a lot. I'm sure you do. Um, so, uh, and, and you said you're also a musician, you're a composer, performer, you have a band. How do you integrate music into your writing? Um, well, well, on the most basic level, I always listen to music when I write. And sometimes finding that right piece of music is the difference between spinning out a thousand words that will stay, and, you know, words that work and just sitting there blankly. Right. When you don't catch that. To me, writing is so much about flow, and I mean the process of writing. Um, and I can tell when I sit down and it's there. And a lot of that has to do with picking the right music. <laughs> um, on another level, I, I, I started studying music seriously back in college from a place of understanding the limitations of the written word. Um, I've always written and I've always loved writing. Um, but I was becoming really aware of these places, these deeper moments that you can't touch with writing, that are much larger than words. And I felt like, and I feel like still, music is a way to, to touch on those. Not to explain them or define them, but to reach them on some emotional level. So that was my entrance point into music, into learning um, the fundamentals of music. And I, I studied um, music in Havana, where my family's from. And, uh, you know, I went deep on that level. And then returning to writing was coming from a place of wondering, in part, well, first of all, I was trying to make money, too, because <laughs> as a musician, I wasn't making money. I was, I was working a lot, working for choreographers and puppeteers and uh, scoring pieces, but um, I wasn't surviving. I was surviving from the ambulance. So in part of trying to work my way off the ambulance, I started writing novels, which I know, why would anyone ever <laughs> write novels to make money? That does sound absurd, unless you know how hard it is to make money as a musician. <laughs> right. Um, but some people can do it, which is amazing. But I, I, as a writer now, I hear music and I think, my God, like, can I ever, can we as writers ever reach some of that amazingness that, you know, like Jimi Hendrix gets to or Radiohead or John Coltrane when they just hit that certain moment and it's like perfection. And I know as a writer that, no, I can't get there. But I know that just in inspiring, you know, in moving in that direction and reaching for that, I'll find something new that I've been looking for that I couldn't really, wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. So I, I think of music like that, like it's this unattainable kind of 
place, this aesthetics that is bigger than words, but that words themselves get better when they try to reach for that impossible thing. Mm. I want to ask another question about music. You've just listed a couple of what seems to be inspirations for you, all very different, Coltrane, Radiohead, uh, but but also the titles of your books are Rumba, Salsa, you have blues in there, but uh, the music you create, uh, and and you said your family's from Cuba, it seems to be the blues, the rumba, the salsa, all kind of music that is indigenous to a uh, to a culture to that was formed um, within these countries. What what is the music you create? And what is what is the significance of these uh, th- this kinds of music to your books, to your writing? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. And um, so my mom is Cuban, my dad is Jewish, and I and I love drawing from the different cultures and kind of throwing them together. But also doing it with intentionality and thinking about what you know, what is the meaning behind that, and where do those musics come from? Where do those cultures come from? Um, I think that, uh, that when I was writing music for choreographers and when I was writing more instrumental tracks, I would do a lot of that. So there would there would be a kind of underlying beat, and then I would I would grab some of this and some of that and put it together. Um, and, and again, I would do it from I've done a lot of research, so I'd be thinking about how these different pieces are in conversation with each other rather than just kind of being scattered in willy-nilly. And I, I'm really always conscious of what's the story being told, even if it's by the rhythm and by the melody. You know, where, where is the narrative bringing us? Where is the tension? Where is the release? Where are all these parts of it coming together? Um, but I love, <laughs> for instance, I love the idea. There's, there's a concept in Cuban music called the montuno, which is, at the end of like a bolero, say a bolero will be a, a ballad, uh, you know, a, sometimes a slower song telling a love story, and then there'll be this moment where all the musicians just completely go nuts, and the chorus will come in repeating something over and over, and the um, soloist will take solos, and there'll be a conversation between the trumpet and the guitar or the wheel. All these different things are happening, and it's it's like an explosion. And to me, it always reminds me of the climax of a novel. All these different elements come into play, you know, the Battle of Five Armies, all these things are happening at once, and it really is this, like, explosion of energy. Um, so I think, I think about those things, and mm. I think about the way that there'll be a, a tension in the dominant fifth chord that will you'll want it to resolve into that one, that moment when the song ends. And some songs don't land back on the one. And sometimes right. that's exactly the kind of beautiful, painful kind of ambiguity that we need and sometimes it really does need to land back on that one, and that's where it goes. And so it's always a conversation kind of back and forth between the words on the page and the sounds in my ears. And are there writers who you feel have been able to create or put into their books that kind of rhythm um, that you read or that you've read or that you might have been inspired by? Definitely, um Nalo Hopkinson comes to mind as a writer who's very rhythmic and very musical. Um, Juno Diaz, mm-hmm. Walter Mosley, those are the ones that jump to mind. Um, that you read it and you're like, it feels like, I think there's a, a lot of connection between the musicality of writing and the spoken word. So right. those writers that feel like they're just sitting across from you at a coffee shop talking to you or at a bar sometimes. Um, you know, whispering or yelling in your ear <laughs> or telling right. you some story, but there's that familiarity. And I love feeling that in a piece in, in writing when it's like there's, there's a certain intimacy. So even though the writer is speaking to millions of people across the world, they're still somehow just talking to you. And to me, there's a, there's, that really goes back to how much musicality there is in how we speak to each other just as human beings. Uh, one of my biggest inspirations is the art of storytelling, period, uh, beyond writers and the written word, paramedics tell great stories. I mean, <laughs> people say, oh, you must have great stories from being a paramedic, and I absolutely do, but uh, what they miss is that a lot of the inspiration that I got from being a medic was the way that we told each other stories, and they were hilarious, and they were messed up, and we're laughing, and it's about people <laughs> in some of their worst moments, and it's not about heartlessness. It's really about finding you know, some of of the light within all that messiness. Um, but there's also just a power to the spoken word and to the way that um, people speak to each other and the call and response and the converse, conversatory aspect of it. That's all very powerful. 
And I think it's easy to get lost, to lose that when we transform stories to the page because it's the page. So we're sort of alone, you know, the idea of the writer all alone in our rooms um, when really we're having this much larger conversation. So I try to remember that when I write. I try to write in a way that, 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 that speaks to that spoken word and, and conversatory aspect of storytelling. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Daniel Jose Older, who's the author of Half Resurrection Blues, who's just talking about uh, a performative aspect to his writing. And uh, Daniel, you've also recorded the audiobooks of your own work, which I have to say was a relief for me because I can only ever hear it in your voice now that I've heard you <laughs> perform it. You. So I'm glad I wouldn't have to try and imagine anyone else speaking these words. But what was it like for you? It was really fun. Um, I mean, like I was just talking about with the with the word, I, I feel like the spoken word brings the written word to life on another level. It puts a new fire into it. And so saying to that, uh, um, you know, even in this weird little enclosed sound booth, um, just made me think about it in a whole new way. Even words that I've said many times before, I always read my pieces aloud before I submit them. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do a lot of performances. Um, let me plug real quick, too. Tomorrow at the New Eurekan at 7 o'clock, we're having a, a book release party for Half Resurrection Blues, and my band is playing, and I'll be reading aloud. Ashley Ford, the great essayist and poet, um, will be hosting, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, it's actually going to be today for the people who are listening to this on Friday, since this is going to go up Friday yeah. afternoon. Friday, 7 o'clock at the New Eurekan. The New Eurekan Poets Cafe is an amazing place. It's on 3rd Street between B and C in Alphabet City, Manhattan. And, um, yeah, I, I just have found that there is a magic to actually putting out loud words to the to the words on the page. That it's always been a transformative transformative experience. On the other hand, it's always a little bit like no matter how many times you've edited a piece and you've read it out loud a million times by the time it goes into print, um, you still find mistakes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you still beat yourself up a little bit. Like I'm not too much of a um, of a detail oriented perfectionist when it comes to particularities like that but it's still like you read it out loud and you're like wait I, 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 can I just change that Jaron you know <laughs> but you know you, you, you have to let go at some point so Half Res isn't your only book coming out this year tell us about Shadow Shaper your first young adult novel yes Shadow Shaper is actually the first book that I wrote um, although it's become something completely different since I sat down to write it back in 2009 but I really did I was reading a lot of Harry Potter and I love Harry Potter. And I also felt a disconnect, and I really wanted to think about what would this be like, you know, if it, if it was centered on people of color, if it was in Brooklyn, um, if the magic was not a Eurocentric magic that just harkened back to Eurocentric medieval folktales. Um, because there's so much richness in our communities. There's so much mythology and history and memory and all these elements that, folks don't get to see in mainstream traditional fantasy and sci-fi and YA. So that, that's really what I sat down, you know, in, in thinking about and wanting to write a great book and a great story and create great characters. Um, so it's about a girl, Sierra Santiago, who taps into a magic that is part of her family history that had been concealed from her that involves uh, bringing the painting murals that she puts on walls to life mm. with spirits. And there's an anthropologist from Colombia who gets involved, and it gets messy, and there's this hot Haitian dude that she gets involved with, and there's a love interest, and all these things. So, you know, it's a story, it's, a, it's a, uh, an adventure, and it's about counter-narrative, and it's about magic and art, and the power of art and culture, and it's about Brooklyn. Did you have fun writing about Brooklyn? Oh, man, I had such a great time. <laughs> I would do, and I, I believe in um, the power of world building, even if it's the world that we live in, but with some magical twists and turns or some ghosts walking around. I do think that, that creating context is 
one of our one of our best tools inside us. You know, the ability to really talk about power in a multi-layered and complicated way lies in how we build those worlds around our characters. And when you think about this city, I mean, this city in particular, but really any city, it's a crossroads. There is so much happening. Every time you walk down the street, there are signs of the city and the way it's changing and the forms of oppression and empowerment that are at play and everything, you know. And so it's like, when you don't tap into that, why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> There's so much to say. And when you use it as the setting, as the context around the story, it's possible to do it in a way where you're not banging people over the head with it. Where it's Because the truth is, it really is a part of people's daily lives, um, the way that gentrification affects things. Police brutality. These are these are daily life things um, that that sometimes explode and sometimes simmer, um, but they're a reality. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I find that writing about it in a way that 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 brings it naturally into the narrative uh, speaks to a certain truth that it's often missing. And you you're talking about bringing reality into your to your fiction. Yet you also write essays on reality on topics like race and power. How did that side of your career develop? Um, you know, an essay, would, I would be writing a book and an essay will happen inside of me and I'll have to write it or I will be banging my head against the keyboard. <laughs> and I, I struggle with nonfiction. I, I love to write it, but it doesn't, it rarely flows out of me in the same way that fiction does. Uh, when I'm rolling on a novel, I can just sit down and write often, not all the time, but generally. But with nonfiction and with essays, oof, it's like pulling every sentence out from my throat, <laughs> one word at a time, sometimes one letter at a time. But um, there are certain things that I'll um, experience or analyze in my head over and over or go through, you know, or see. And the way that they want to come out of me is, is in the nonfiction, straightforward essay saying exactly what I see and, and taking it apart piece by piece and putting it back together. Um, I, I love the essay form for its ability to be so emotional and so political at the same time in a in a very particular way. Um, and I love essays like Ashley Ford, like Saeed Jones, um, Kiesi Lehman, who write these amazing pieces about being alive and connect that and bridge their experiences in life to these larger questions that we ask as a culture and these questions about power, about gender and race. Um, but it's a, it's a way of humanizing that conversation and not making it just in the academic realm, but making it about what we live, you know, as people in the world. So that, that to me has been the power of the essay is reading essays like that, reading Baldwin books and understanding what, what an essay can do and then just sort of groping at that. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's about there are just some things that need to be said straightforward. And there are other things that I think do well to be kind of coded into the mythology of fiction. You had written a piece, I'm thinking of one in particular that you had contributed to BuzzFeed, and it was on diversity in publishing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is a topic that we had talked about. Uh, we had our uh, two of our editors on staff uh, talk to us about an issue we had in the magazine on diversity in publishing. Can you tell us your your thoughts on that, your experiences perhaps? Yeah, where to begin though? <laughs> uh, let's talk about. Topic. I think you had said something in the article you had written that you didn't know uh, a person of color in uh, the book publishing world until I think it said your current agent or something. Um, no, that's not exactly true. I mean, I, I think I was talking about just dealing with the fact head on. You know that there are so few people of color in the industry, mm-hmm. um, and that it is so extremely white. That that's an issue that we need to talk about with a lot of honesty and with a lot of vulnerability. And that's sort of what I think is often missing from the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the repercussions of that, both on how the industry looks from the outside, so what books are published, how they're published, what the covers look like, um, and what it looks like from the inside in the sense of what are the conversations happening within the industry as far as in, you know, in the boardrooms, but also what are writers of color um, and and it's really not, diversity isn't just about race, um, but definitely writers of color, um, trans people, LGBTQ folks, uh, people of different abilities. You know what is going on with us as far as like 
are we self-censoring? Are we telling our truest story? Or are we being careful because we know that the gatekeepers who are ultimately going to be in charge of deciding whether or not our book gets out into the world are largely white and often straight and functioning within a very particular patriarchy and gender binary. So the question I have and the question I think we all need to ask ourselves at all levels of the industry is, first of all, how do we break through this situation as it is? Because it's not a, it's not a fair situation, it's not equitable, it's not right to have such a heavily imbalanced industry of, full of whiteness and white culture. And second of all, being that that's what it is right now, how do we confront it in real-world ways as writers? How do we make sure that our truest and most authentic voices and stories are getting out there? And as agents and editors and publishers, how do, how do, how do those folks play a role in it? Because they do play a big role. Um, but often they're the last people that we hear from. Now, there's amazing folks, and I've been really blessed to work with them, that are you know, saying brave and powerful things and doing good work. But the majority of the industry, you don't hear a lot about it, you know. So it's great that we're having this conversation, that we're talking about diversity. I want us to go deeper and talk about power, talk about race and power and gender and power. How do those things really affect things as far as uh, forms of censorship that are happening? Because folks love to cry censorship when they're called out, you know, for being oppressive. But let's talk about the kinds of censorship that happens without ever even a word going back and forth, but the, the forms of censorship that basically mean people aren't even bothering to put their true stories out there because a lot of times they know or they assume that they won't be greeted with friendly faces because it is calling into question the very uh, supremacies that we're dealing with. Um, Rose Lemberg recently launched a big discussion about this uh, under yes, the hashtag don't self-reject. Uh, Thank you. I was trying to remember what the hashtag was. Yeah, it's it was because uh, uh, that, that was that was a big conversation, um, which I was participating in also because right now I'm writing a book about a queer transgender hero. And it's a romance novel. I'm thinking no romance publisher is ever going to touch this. So I, right. I, I definitely I feel that feeling of why should I even bother at, at the same time that I feel the urge to write this story, which is a story I know pretty intimately from my own life. Right. Um, right. So do you have, uh, as someone who, who's clearly pushed past that, you know, now two books out, um, also you and I edited an anthology together, you've got another mm -hmm. novel coming out soon. Um, do you have any advice for writers who are struggling with this particular kind of self-rejection? Um, don't do it. It's my best <laughs> advice. And I know that I don't say that thinking that it's as simple as just me saying it and so people won't. Um, but someone asked me recently what I would, I think it was on the Reddit I did, the AMA. Someone mm -hmm. asked me what I would do differently, or what advice I would give to my younger self as a writer, mm -hmm. knowing now what I know. And I, I would I would tell people that, and I would tell myself, you know, that that there are those people in the industry and that the, the, the our job is to find them. And it's not a fair thing. It's not, it shouldn't be that we have to struggle with these conversations. You know, you shouldn't have to ask yourself all those questions. Um, but use that as part of the inspiration to both make the work truer and more, you know, heartbreaking and difficult and beautiful and also use it as your fire to find the right people, the people that will truly uplift your voice and, you know, and not try to make a simplistic commodity out of it and not reject it because it's too raw, um, you know, not try to mold it into what they think it's supposed to be. Um, but, I, you know, I've heard so many horror stories because every writer of color will tell you some really messed up things that have happened to them in the industry. And so I was like pretty much assuming that I wouldn't find anybody uh, because of all the painful things that have happened to us in the past. Um, but I did find really good people, um, both agents and editors. And I think knowing that, you know, I, I, I want people to know that that's possible. One, two, I think don't ever let anyone tell you what your path to success is, what success means, because it's so individual. And especially now, now more than ever, Writers have unprecedented access to audiences. We have the ability to reach thousands and thousands of people 
now in ways that we hadn't ever before. Um, and self-publishing is a whole other thing now than it's ever been, and it's always changing. Uh, and small presses are doing their thing in ways that they never had before. So there are these, you know, at the basicest, most basic level, there are three different paths as far as bigger houses and independent presses and self-publishing. But even within that and in between, there's so much space to do different things, and there's ways that we haven't even thought of yet. Um, so the game is changing, and I think approach it, approach publishing and marketing and all these different levels with the same creativity that you approach the written word and storytelling so that it doesn't feel like, ah, oh, this is just something I have to do to survive. You know, as a writer, I know I'm supposed to do this. No, come at it with, you know, with excitement. And it, it's, that's not an easy thing. Uh, but I think when that clicks, when there's a moment for a lot of writers when, when we're like, okay, my career is also a creative expression of myself and how I put myself out there in the world is also a part of how I tell stories and who I am as a writer and an artist. Um, and that's actually a really exciting thing and it's a great thing and, you know, it's inspiring. So that should push us forward. Uh, we don't have to be trapped by these uh, ridiculous hierarchies of the past and of the present. Uh, we can push past it. So it, it requires us to be courageous and ridiculous and outrageous in how we do everything. Wow. <laughs> it's very inspiring. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Daniel Jose Older, and you can find his book, Have Resurrection Blues, in stores right now. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're still on vacation next week, but we'll have another excellent pair of interviews from the archives for you to enjoy. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 